Hello, and welcome to another episode of City on a Hill, a podcast about what it means to be a citizen of heaven and a citizen of the United States. We want to encourage Christians to find their tribe in the church and their hope in the kingdom of God, rather than to seek both in the kingdom of man. So with that, let's get to it today. Well, hello, I'm Eric Eastep. And I'm Scott Reevely. And this is the City on a Hill podcast. Welcome back, listeners. I was going to have a great episode ready to go again on Thomas Aquinas and some really fun stuff, but it sounds like Scott has more to say. We it talked last week, like but there's more to say from Scott's people side of the table. thank me. <laughs> well, so. So, so we'll put it off for another week. Okay. Very <laughs> um, Fair enough. That sounds good. Well, last uh, I w- we started off last time by saying that uh, I was reading a book on on the Revolutionary War and on the Civil War, and uh, got fired up enough about the Revolutionary War that we never got to the Civil War. So, um, which is why we're missing out on Thomas Aquinas right now. That's right. We'll just continue to find wars until we ultimately have to do it. Here's an, another war. Oh, hey, golly. the French Revolution. Why not? Why not? <laughs> and when we run out of wars, you'll hear from Thomas Aquinas. So there we go. <laughs> uh, hopefully that's not the case. But um, yeah, so the the Civil War as well as the Revolutionary War uh, represent a crisis in how. Um, People read their Bibles and and what the Bible had to say about public life. So it is interesting, really, all of the same kinds of things that were faced in uh, the Revolutionary War showed themselves again in the Civil War, Mm -hmm. which isn't really a surprise. Uh, Mark Noel, in his book, The Civil War is a Theological Crisis, said that the the nation was— the book that made the nation was destroying the nation. The mm. nation that had taken to the book was not rescued by the book, but by the force of arms. And uh, he, again, his perspective is that the uh, Revolutionary War era was, you know, the book cor- formed the, the nation, and now because people couldn't decide how to read the Bible with respect to slavery in particular, mm. uh, they were, it was destroying the, the nation. So... Uh, one of the things about that, and this is this is going to kind of shake down through all our discussion we'll have about slavery and the discussion we'll have about uh, other things, is that both the North and the South uh, attempted to lay claim on the Patriots' cause. And by that I mean the um, everyone wanted to be a Patriot like the... Uh, like Washington and the fathers. and Yeah, who threw off uh, oppressive British rule. So, surprise, the, the South felt like the mantle of the patriots fell to them because they were throwing off oppressive rule of the North. Hmm. And that now the North was in the position of the, the British. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the, the North felt like the heritage they had received from the patriots was... Uh, the Union, and so they were going to be patriots and uh, do what they could to sustain the Union. So you have both sides 
vying for the Patriots cause, which was um, the reason I mentioned that is because the problem they had in the Revolutionary War mm -hmm. uh, had a trickle down effect in the uh, Civil War. So I, th I just thought that that was really interesting that because there was this, you might say, precedent set by mm -hmm. the Patriots, the uh, successive generations ended up going to war for the same, right. you know, with the same relation to the Bible, basically. Well, then you can have both sides intense in their love of, I was going to say country, but it got, it got split for a moment, but basically love of country uh, with two very different ends in view, uh, but still having that, the love still there, the, the desire to go a particular direction um, and be patriotic. I, did, I just think that's really interesting. You basically have the parents as the founding fathers, then the grandchildren mm -hmm. wanting to emulate the fathers end up fighting each other. And both thinking they're doing it. Right. See, and that, and that, that relates to how they um, function with the Bible too, because they're both take the same kind of, they take the same book and both then connect it to the Patriots cause right. and say, we're both doing this same thing. So um, all the things that we talked about last time uh, in the Revolutionary War are present again uh, in the Civil War. Uh, again, Mark Knoll says, more particularly Americans leading Protestant theologians first argue convincingly that the people of the United States stood in a covenantal relationship with God. For most of them, a vocabulary of corporate repentance and renewal handed down from the Puritans remained an appropriate vocabulary for addressing the American public about its privileges and duties before God. And so that covenantal relationship with God is the very thing we talked about mm -hmm. last year where, um, again, where we get the last name. Last year, yeah. Last year. We've been, we did talk about it last year. We talked I'm about sure it we did. last week. Well, okay. But, it, but it's that... Um, Essentially, America stands in the same kind of relationship to God as Israel did. Mm -hmm. And that never went away. It uh, didn't go away that first hundred years. I don't think it's gone away yet. Right. It's still there. And so... The ex extra biblical idea is still one that has biblical force. Yeah. And, and, but I think that's really important for us to, to tease apart and think about with relation to how, what do we expect from America? What do we expect from God with respect to America. So that's one. I mean, the other thing that was very much the same, uh, the, the same forces in the Civil War as in the Revolutionary War had to do with anti-traditionalism. Again, Noel says, the United States uh, was brought into existence by men who deliberately rejected the authority of tradition in forming the new country. It was not precedent, history, or inherited dicta that pointed the way to an independent nation, but truths considered to be self-evident. Mm. And so it became, I mean, they, they worked it so much that it became self-evident mm -hmm. that you could throw off tradition. I just kind of hear Roger Williams again. Yeah. Just that in, in, it's not necessarily individualistic because there was a group doing that together, but in regards to my relationship to tradition, it is, the now you is more important You can't tell me what then. to do. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right, and so those are the things that the Civil War inherited from the Revolutionary War, or, and, it, and we can't blame it all on the Patriots and on the war. 
they inherited the anti-traditionalism really from Roger Williams and mm-hmm. from religious things as well. We mentioned last week the uh, Second Great Awakening did that, just like the First Great Awakening did. So there right. was this religious aspect to the anti-traditionalism, and there was as well this um, covenant relationship with God that was not so much a political device as it was a religious device. And so the fact that they those were you know became indistinguishable b- was really a difficult thing to navigate for um, for the ministers as they called them during mm. during the Civil War. Then of course the other issue that they had that was um, very much became a biblical issue was the issue of slavery and. Um, it is fascinating how uh, they worked on the scriptures to support and to abolish slavery. Mm. Uh, when I say it's a you know it's a slavery issue, it's an economic issue, it's a social issue. I mean, one preacher said slavery was a good and merciful way of organizing labor, which providence has given us. And then Noel goes on to say about the propriety of this system in the eyes of God, Thornwell was so confident that, like Beecher, he did not engage in any actual biblical exegesis. Rather, he simply asserted the relation between betwi- excuse me, that the relation betwixt the slave and his master is not inconsistent with the word of God. We have long since settled. We cherish the institution not from avarice, but from principle. So these are these are preachers who are um, who are embracing or cherishing the institution of slavery from principle, and and using, I think using is the right word. They're using or twisting uh, scripture to to prop up that institution. Well, yeah. Well, let's we'll talk about that a little bit more. Well, in this co- episode is going to be full of quotes that are just not fun. <laughs> I mean, yeah, this is just, it, it's fairly overwhelming. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that we don't, you know, you don't think about very much are truly the economic um, impacts of this. So so just about the church alone, not the economics impacts of slavery or anything like that, but this, th- this was crazy to me. And modern readers could hardly understand this. In 1860, there were in the United States 35 churches for each banking facility. Hmm. There are, today, there are four churches for each banking facility. And so the, the, the church was way more important than Wall Street, you might say, or way more important than um, that. And then the total value of all church property in the country was pegged by the 1850 census at over 87 million and in 1860 over 169 million, which may or may not seem like a lot, but of all the American industries, only the railroads enjoyed greater capital investment. Oh, wow. In other words, the very big, well, the second biggest Mm -hmm. um, uh, economic uh, issue for capital investment in America were churches, hmm. 
which is radically different. And I think I just wanted to point those two things out because just the the prominence of the church the, churches in that time. Right, you can't talk about the civil war without talking about the church mm-hmm. because of that. Mm. Because the churches are as powerful as the railroads, right, and more powerful than the banks. I mean, that's we just couldn't even imagine a world like that. Yeah, that that's not the world we live in today. Yeah, and so. Then, with that kind of economic underpinnings and all that, the church then weighs in on what are we going to do about slavery. And um, I'm, going to, I'm going to try and give sort of a, an overview. So, so here, is, here is my understanding of these couple of books that I've read about it. Um, abolitionists and people who... Uh, wanted to suppress slavery, so maybe not abolish it, but not mm-hmm. have it be the knock it down the policy. Yeah, was um, their approach to the scripture was that they would take principles from the scripture, like the image of God. I mean, mm-hmm. some very fundamental mm-hmm. principles, and say all humans are, are should be granted dignity and respect because of the um, image of God in them. Okay, does that say, therefore, no slavery? Well, it doesn't really say that. But you have then on the pro-slavery side, people who have actual texts that say, slaves, obey your masters Mm. in the Lord, for this is right. And they're saying, how are we going to argue with this? This is like black and white. It says here that the Bible not only supports slavery, but um, gives guidance for slaves. Mm. And so there was this this really odd, and I, I, I want to highlight this because I think we struggle the same thing today. There's this odd combination, or actually opposition, mm-hmm. wasn't a combination, they were against each other, from seeing the, the scriptures in their whole mm-hmm. and seeing the scriptures in their particular. In the particular, the South said they, they support slavery. In principle, in general... It was obvious on the face of it to people in the North and particularly to people overseas who were looking at the sure. American situation to say, wait, they're not seeing this right because it's clear that the force of Scripture is that uh, the slavery is wrong and unjust. And so um, that's interesting because it's very easy for people in certain segments of Christianity to really uh, what I want to say, press into a verse or right. the thing that's going to, that gives me the that answer. single sentence yeah. or proof text. Right. Yep. And it's, and then on the other hand, it's, it is still very easy for some people to pull back and just say, the Bible says, mm-hmm. and they are overly general. And so I think that, you know, one of the principles that we would probably espouse and recommend in your Bible reading is sort of this this loop between the general and specific. Mm-hmm. In other words, what the as you read the scripture, you develop this vocabulary and this you know sense about what the Bible really has, and then as you uh, refine it by individual texts, mm-hmm. it becomes a better loop. Right. Kind of every time you loop through, whereas uh, if you just do one or the other. You end up either on the north or the south, and right. you end up with the with the civil war. So, anyway, that's that was sort of the overview of all of the slavery uh, issues that that I think the 
the, the nation ran into. They ran into some that were more specific, I'm sure, but that's, that's worth noting because that's a interpretive. Well, maybe, maybe you can uh, piece that apart. If, if we assume that yeah, you have the, the problem being the Civil War with the general or the specific approach to Scripture, mm-hmm. um, but if we're aiming for that loop, how would you use that loop in 1865 to pull together the general and the specific? Because you don't just want to say, oh, don't read it specifically. Otherwise, yeah, you, you can't. Yeah, you can't. So, so how, how would you have done that in 1865? Well, that's, that's really interesting because no one would have understood me in 1865 were I to try it. Mm. You know, I, I don't think. Because what I would do is that I would, I would probably begin in the first pages of the Bible and trace through the way that God does offer human dignity mm-hmm. and how even in Christ we are being remade into the image of God mm-hmm. and uh, into the New Testament and start there and then loop into those uh, other texts. And see, <laughs> see what I would have done, what I would have done is I would have been uh, obviously more nuanced about the argument than, than I've presented it so far. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that, that I would have to come to grips with, and, and Noel mentions in his book, The Civil War is a Theological Crisis, is that nuanced uh, answers didn't persuade. Hmm. In other words, I probably wouldn't have been persuasive because I would have said that American slavery is based on race, whereas the biblical slavery that it talks about in the New Testament wasn't. And so there is a separate issue with respect to uh, slavery. There is this institution of slavery and there is the institution of racism. Mm-hmm. And those two intersect in diabolical ways in America that were not the same. Mm. They did not intersect the same way in others. I mean, in, in the first century, mm-hmm. for instance. So that would have been one thing that was uh, of issue. And I think that... Um, the the loop then goes to okay why would he say masters or you know slaves obey your masters and masters uh, treat your slaves fairly why would he say those things to people in church well because they're brothers mm-hmm. what is it about being brothers in the church right. that supersedes and that's I think his argument is that right. it supersedes the master slave relationship therefore you loop around again to have a better definition for how people of different economic classes interact and then you go back to other texts. So you, I would loop it like mm-hmm. that, but, but I, but I also would admit right now that that kind of looping would not have been persuasive to people because they hear it differently. I mean, I just, just so totally reminds me of some of the conversations we had in 2020 mm-hmm. about how to relate to the government. If you try uh-huh. and be anywhere near precise or nuanced and, it, this by this scripture says this, this scripture says this, let's take them together. And you know, you were done mm-hmm. unless you just kind of raised your fist and said, this is, you know, this is what, uh, God says you kind of, you were dismissed. And I think it's similar to that. That's mm-hmm. kind of how I felt anyway. Mm-hmm. So it, the, well, and you have the fever, pit, it, it specifically 1865, you just have the fever pitch of war. So you, you, you're off to the side of the battlefield going, hey, can we have a nuanced conversation? <laughs> like, no, it's not going to work. Yeah, no, you're too late. Yeah. Um, so it'd really be well before that. Yeah. See, see, this is, I mean, the, the, the pro-slavery South would say things like, first, open the scriptures and read. 
um, say uh, Leviticus 25, 45, or even better, uh, 1 Corinthians 7, 20, and 21. And then second, decide for yourself what these passages mean. Mm. And so they're, they, they pick the ones of, that don't abolish slavery, but uh, would uh, govern slavery. Right. Leviticus 25, 45 says, You may also buy from among the strangers who sojourn with you and their clans that are with you who have been born in your land, and they, and they may be your property. Yeah. So decide what those We're not going to read anything else. Just read that sentence and figure it out. Yeah. And so um, there, there, several things happen in, in that little quote that I just read, right? One is that that specific text that doesn't abolish slavery uh, or appears to support slavery uh, is the thing, the specific text. Then the second thing is decide for yourself what those passages mean. I mean, it's that individual, uh, I'm sort of my own governor uh, kind of issue. So there are uh, uh, several things. I mean, one of the things Noel says, he says, the interpretive practices that have grown up with the great antebellum denominations, so the Baptists and the Methodists mm-hmm. and all that, favored Democratic, Republican, anti-traditional, and commonsensical exegesis. Against this historical background, the biblical pro-slavery argument seemed very strong. The biblical anti-slavery argument seemed to be religiously dangerous, and the nuanced biblical argument against slavery in its American form did not comport well with the democratic practice and Republican theory. Mm. And so it basically just said uh, what I was trying to summarize mm-hmm. there, that you know, it didn't work to try and be nuanced because everyone's fired up about it, and those specific two or three problematic texts mm. um, won the day. Well, it also says, essentially, we were culturally geared to not be able to hear a, a good way of reading Scripture, which that, is pretty interesting. It did say that, and in another quote that he has is, it's no con- coincidence that the biblical defense of slavery remains strongest in the United States, a place where democratic, anti-traditional, and individualistic religion was also strongest. Yeah, and so there is this cultural conditioning. Mm-hmm. And again, part of the reason we're doing this podcast, part of the reason we wanted just to put um, Aquinas off for a few weeks <laughs> was because was because this is, you know, we're still democratic and traditional individualistic. Mm-hmm. And this will happen again, and it'll happen again in the next 18 months. Mm-hmm. Because we're going to have, uh, we're going to have another election, and you're going to hear rhetoric that is, you know, uses the same kind of um, appeal. Uh, yeah, appeal, and in the fact that culturally it's very hard to oppose it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so that's what he's that's what he's getting at, and that's why this is worth talking about, because we can all look back from a distance and say, "Oh, shame, shame, mm-hmm. slavery is wrong," and then we we kind of zero in, and it's like, "Oh." I recognize the way that they got there, mm-hmm. which is, to me, that's that's really humbling, right? And so, and we may not, we may use that same method, yeah. not come to uh, the same ends. We're we're not going to be dealing with slavery in our context, but still using that way of reading the Bible and, and 
almost a foregone conclusion we're going to end up over here because we're not thinking about it and the, our culture is aiming us this mm -hmm. way. That's what we need to be aware of. And looking back in history helps us see, oh, we're not dealing with that. So it's clear what they did and how silly they are. No, no, that they are like us. We are just going to be engaging something different. S same yeah. method, same proclivities. And, and again, I, I, we're doing this podcast in part because it is this political crisis that the, the church has been, you know, captivated by in the last, uh, what, six years now or seven years now that has caused some people to uh, jettison their faith or jettison their belief in the Bible or jettison their uh, trust in the church. And that is an outcome. Mm -hmm. And it was then too. And again, Noel says this, he said, the country had a problem because it's most trusted religious authority. The Bible was sounding an uncertain note. Mm. The evangelical Protestant churches had a problem because the mere fact of trusting, trusting implicitly in the Bible was not solving disagreements about what the Bible taught concerning slavery. And, you know, even just the way I described how they both came at it differently and essentially talked past one another mm -hmm. using the Bible, mm -hmm. what it did is it called into question the Bible itself. Right. And I think it's done that in our day where people call into question the Bible when it really is the, a lot of it is the assumptions underneath the the person or the culture mm -hmm. uh, that is coming at the Bible that maybe should be called into question. So. Right. Yeah, when the the craftsman of the interpretation is a poor craftsman and we we judge the material rather than the person trying to make something out of it. And, you know, again, when, a, when we're talking about these really focused one verse, two verse things to support slavery, this is the way the question was posed. And this is the way questions are posed to me too. Sometimes when I like, well, I'm not really sure it's exactly that. And someone will say, well, what's wrong with you? But it'll sound like this. I mean, this is talking again, this is an old, he says the most skillful use of the Bible in defending slavery came from Americans like Richard Fuller, Thomas Stringfellow, or even Moses Stewart, who were careful exegetes of individual passages, but who also knew how to pose the question of orthodox fidelity. Will you follow God's faithful word in the Bible or the deliverances of your own finite and easily swayed conscience? Mm. Golly. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's, uh, well, that'd be convicting if you're sitting under that. Well, terrible. I yeah. mean, you, you don't have a good option. There. And what they meant by deliverances of your own finite, easily swayed conscience is more your attempt to do biblical theology mm -hmm. with respect to the image of God, with respect to you know, how the, the, the flow of redemption happened with the slaves in Egypt and, mm -hmm. you know, various aspects of the gospel, you start trying to do that and that, and get accused of your own being you know, uh, your own finite and easily swayed conscience. And then you, what are you going to do? Right. Yeah. There's no way to talk about that. So, um, Oh, oh, this is an interesting thing. Oh, oh, Ooh, oh here he goes. <laughs> um, the, the North and the South had different favorite verses. Of course. The North and the South had... Different posters on their wall that... <laughs> well, yes, with, with Bible verses yeah, on them. of course. And so uh, this is, again, this is the way that James Bird talks about it. He said, while Northerners attacked, 
attacked rebellion, finding biblical ammunition in Paul's teaching in Romans 13, and the tragic revolt of Absalom in another text, Southerners proclaimed biblical condemnations of idolatry, accusing the North of carving an idol out of the Union. Lincoln was the American Nebuchadnezzar, they argued, a tyrant who wanted to cast the South into his fiery furnace. Just, just that sentence makes me grin because there's no way our current culture ha- would have the biblical literacy to label someone Nebuchadnezzar and have any idea what's going on. Or get any traction with that kind of label. Right. <laughs> what? What are you talking about? But, but you see, I mean, what, what I said about the, the importance of the church and how big right. it was compared to the railroads and all that. If you're going to convince, you better use You have to use yeah. the, the Bible. And that's what they were doing. And again, it's interesting that when they did that, here, the Northerners, Northerners attacked rebellion with Romans 13, or really a contained story about Absalom rebelling against David, mm-hmm. uh, whereas the Southerners did, a, they did the opposite of what they do with slavery. They did this broad sweep about idolatry mm-hmm. and then labeled... Um, Lincoln, the American Nebuchadnezzar, making everyone bow down, bow down mm-hmm. to his idol and throw him in the fire first. So it's interesting that that on different issues, they both approach right. it differently, which again, whatever became uh, convenient as a way to use yeah, whatever tool the, at hand, the we'll Bible, use. which is, again, you're wondering why I get stressed about this. It, <laughs> it's because you, use, you can use the, it, this is clearly both sides using the Bible for their ends with the, kind of these two separate lever, levers of, you know, specific texts and mm-hmm. general theology. And, um, yeah, it was, yeah, it's stressful for me. <clears throat> Scott doesn't want another civil war. Yeah, that would be really <laughs> great, wouldn't it? Let's not have one. If the civil war was a holy war, Bird goes on to say, it became so through the efforts of ministers who unleashed a scriptural arsenal into the crisis. Mm. Isn't that interesting? That, that so prominent were the chaplains and the ministers and all that, that, that um, he was, they, they were credited with unleashing an arsenal into right. the war. Let's throw these things in and blow this war up. Well, that's the, th- as their that minister, idea is the thing that gives me pause. As their minister. Not necessarily, I'm not stressed out like you are about this book, uh, but I didn't, I didn't read it, you read the book, but Something like that is where I am given pause because I want to make sure I have kind of a a holy fear about preaching or when I have to get up and, and say, hey, hey, here's what the Bible says. I have a a little bit of like trepidation about that every every time. And I, I don't want to lose that trepidation. I don't want to get so familiar and so blasé that, oh, yeah, I think it goes over here. And it, it seems there's a lack of um, trepidation there and it's, oh, we're just going to we're just going to throw stuff out here, and it's just going to go, and we're going to inflame inflame a crisis. And I can see that I'm not. We're not in a, a civil war context, but we've been in in a lot of contexts that were crises. Well, they're, they're polarized. Polarized. We are in a polarized. And thing. I felt that danger. Like, yeah. okay, I I can't just go. I want us to go over here. So how do I bend scripture to make that work? And there's just a lot of of pulling it apart and trying to understand. And okay, I th- I think it's this. Um, and I, I guess I'd, ca- I'd caution us to have just a bit of, I think fear is probably a good word for that. Like, these are God's words. Don't, don't throw them about flippantly, especially if they easily 
if it seems to easily support what you want to happen, then I, then I'm even more like, oh, I don't know, be, be careful. But I mean, you're not going to try and decide, I hope, what you want to have happen apart from the Bible. No, of course not. Right. So then you're, what are you saying? You can't use the Bible that supports your argument so that... No, I'm just saying be careful and okay. be, be fearful. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is... Be fearful, be respectful, be humble, because mm-hmm. this is what happens otherwise. Mm-hmm. This kind of... And the thing is, you know, America is polarized, but not because of Scripture. Not in the same way they were in... Oh, in the current context. In, in the current yeah, context. Yeah. Not the same way they were in the Civil War. Yeah. But um, the church is polarized for the same reason. Mm-hmm. See, that's, I think, the thing where now that you're, you're saying the, the culture doesn't have the language to call somebody mm-hmm. an American Nebuchadnezzar, and I agree, but the church does. Mm-hmm. And the church throws labels around or accepts labels that they heard on TV or something. Mm-hmm. And then... You get uh, you get stuck with the same kind of talking past one another and blaming each other and using the scripture as they did here. Sure. So, and again, this is uh, this is Noel in the on the theological crisis. He says the theological crisis of the Civil War was that while voluntary reliance on the Bible had contributed greatly to the creation of American national culture. Okay, probably think the. Uh, First Great Awakening and um, the sort of the birth of America, the same voluntary reliance on the scripture led to a to deadlock over what should be done about slavery. And so, essentially, this the the uh, he's saying this voluntary reliance, I think, is a sort of a code for individualistic mm. uh, reliance or. Um, opinions about scripture that came both out of the first and the second great awakening and they couldn't resolve it without their uh, without help I guess so mm-hmm. anyway that's um, that's some of the I think the stress of the, the use of the Bible in the Civil War so um, that is our um, that's my summary, and now you don't have to read any of these books and get agitated yourself. How's that? <laughs> that uh, so is that is that the the end of the cautionary tale? Oh no! I mean, the cautionary tale continues to today, but this well, is sure. a, th- this little <laughs> chapter on the Civil War is that's kind of all I got. I still haven't finished the books. Okay. Or, oh. uh, the book, as far at least the Holy Baptism of Fire and Blood book. <laughs> what a title. <laughs> <laughs> I just had to throw that in there again because that yeah. is a really good title. And you, are you going to put those in the show notes for people? Yeah, yeah. So that Not so they buy them and read them, apparently. <laughs> well, you can. <laughs> that, this, uh, this book by Noel, The Civil War is a Theological Crisis, was very, very interesting. You know, the last couple chapters about the Catholics, um, the, the Catholics' uh, vision of this or how they saw it and how people from... Europe saw it mm-hmm. were less interesting, but but some of it was really really uh, helpful. So, well, good. Well, thank thank you for using your frustration to help us and give us. My frustration is always a blessing to other people. <laughs> <laughs> that can't be true. <laughs> oh well, un- until future frustration brings you inspiration, um, 
listeners, don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts so that you're ready when something else strikes. And uh, don't forget to rate us. That's always helpful. Um, a review goes a long way to getting this to other people. Share it with a friend. If you have questions, send them to comment at cityonahillpodcast.com. And we look forward to the next conversation.